Hey there, and welcome to Yes, a Stripper Podcast. On this podcast, we'll discuss how classifying each other as people and workers is dangerous to society and marginalized groups of people. We'll also talk about the climate in and outside of the strip clubs and all of the amazing things that strippers do. And of course, we'll talk about all of the things in between. I'm your queen, A.M. Davies, and this is Yes, a Stripper Podcast. Hello, dears. Welcome to Yes, a Stripper Podcast. This is AMD, a.k.a. the queen of motherfucking sexy. Okay, so this episode is about pole history and that it derives, pole dancing derives from stripping. So just to give you a little idea about our guest for today, her name is Crimson Minx and she is someone who I have worked with over the last several years in researching the history of pole dance and how it derives from stripping and that pole dancing was invented by strippers, etc. Um, so yeah, this is a really important episode. We're going to debunk some narratives and we're also going to ask you, the listener, what do you know that we don't know? Because, surprise, uh, a lot of history of sex work it was not documented uh, and not to the extent that we would like. So we need help in filling in some holes, but also we filled in a lot of holes from reading books and visiting museums. Um, so you're going to find out a lot more. And Crimson is so thorough and such a joy to work with. We are quite a team. Um, so we literally will be breaking down the history starting from the early 1920s up until the early 2000s. Um, and we we covered so much, but not enough. And we're considering doing a two-parter. And just to let you know, all of this research and information has been culminated as a result of me and my one of my business partners trying to do a documentary on all of this. And long story short, we ran out of money. It's really hard to get a documentary fundraised. Karina went through, my business partner went through a career change. I ended up having an accident. I went through a career change, then COVID hit. Like, But I will honestly say that I'm very grateful that we never finished this documentary because so many things have changed since we started doing this research, doing the interviews, and doing this documentary. We started in 2014, and so much has changed that I would probably be really upset with the content that I would have put out two years, even a year ago, because my outlook and the world's outlook and all of the things that are happening around us are so different than they were in 2014. And so I'm really grateful that we've had the time to let everything simmer because um, now we can we can really get down to the nitty gritty because so many things have come to the surface. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful to be released from the whore phobia that plagued me for so many years um, because that whore phobia definitely contributed to the way that we were trying to tell the story the history and trying how it was it was dictating the narrative of the documentary. I was staying true to the origins of pole dancing uh, via stripping, but I still had elements of whore phobia lingering, and I acknowledge that 
in the larger part of this podcast. So I will ramble no further and let you just get right to the heart of this show, of this particular episode. I'm so excited for you to listen. And please write in with your thoughts and any information that you have on the subjects that we cover. Enjoy yourselves. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Yes, a Stripper podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different. Today's guest is not a stripper, but she's definitely a stripper ally. Hi, Crimson. How are you? Hi, Emery. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for being here. So I just need to explain to the audience why this episode is special. So Crimson and I have been working together since, like, when would you say I came to you or that we started talking about the history of pole dancing? Um, Probably 2000 and maybe 15. Yeah, 2014, 2015, I think. Yeah, because 2014 was when I started this project called Fistful of Steel, which was meant to be a history of pole dancing starting from like the 1920s and how pole dancing derived from stripping. So 2014 was a long time ago. It was like, it feels like it was 20 years ago. Things are vastly different. Wouldn't you agree? It's a different world. (laughs) Such a different world. I don't know about you, but I'm a very different person as well. I've evolved a lot as a human being. Yes. Do you have a similar sentiment or are you cruising? If if it's been six years and you haven't evolved as a human, what are you (laughs) doing with your life, especially in these times? So yes, for sure. And I feel like um, that's that's the point of this all to grow and to, as we learn new things and yeah. evolve ourselves. So um, it's kind of, it's fun to come back and cause we haven't chatted on this in a few years. So it's, it's right. fun to come back and, and, uh, and jump back on that horse. Yeah. And so I want to be really authentic and fully transparent with, with our audience and that, you know, when I originally was working on this project and I started to bring it to other people, I was um, deep in my whore phobia. I was really, you know, I didn't know that I was plagued with whore phobia. And my goal was to not only tell the history of pole dancing and that it derives from strippers, because I always acknowledge that. I myself was a stripper, obviously, still am. But my other goal was to really define the difference between the two, like in this effort to sort of save the well-being of the pole dance industry. And I look back on that and I realize how damaging that mentality was. And I'm I'm very grateful to have grown and come out of that. But I just want to be really straight up with everyone. I don't want to sit here and sugarcoat and pretend that all of my intentions were good for all because they weren't. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Because you remember in the beginning when I was like, this isn't a stripper pole. It's a pole. Why are you calling it a stripper pole? And now I'm like, oh, no, honey, you better like, no, that is a stripper pole. And you are a civilian on a stripper pole. And so I've just kind of done this 180. Is that something that you've noticed at all in the narrative? In in your narrative? Yeah. I I, you know what? I had have not actually. I felt like you were always very authentically like wanting to share the real story. And yeah. there was never this denial of of where it came from. So I think I maybe missed that first part. Right. So, so not a denial of where it came from, but more mm-hmm. like um 
more like it was really important to me to define the difference. Mm, okay. And I and I think my intentions were I I didn't have good I, I had good intentions, but I they weren't helpful. I think you always had great intentions. I'm gonna say well, that. Well, thank about you so you. much. Thank you, Crimson, <laughs> for being a wonderful fan. But I just feel like I have to say that for the record. Um, if anybody sees any past trailers or anything, I just really wanted to make that clear. But I'm, we're here. We're on the right path, and we're here to talk about the history of pole dancing and how pole dancing itself was created by strippers popularized by strippers and pioneered specifically in Los Angeles and 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 also to get to the bottom of other information that we might be missing but pole dancers strippers black strippers specifically in Los Angeles were the pioneers of the type of pole dancing that we see now. And so we're gonna uncover all of these past things that a lot of people don't know about. We're going to debunk some narratives that you all believe in currently. Um, and Crimson and I have been holding on to this information because we wanted to put it in this documentary. And now we're not sure what's happening with the documentary. So we're just trying to get some information out. So are you ready to dive into this with me? Crimson. I'm ready. I'm ready to learn some, okay. some new research that you have as well. So perfect. Yes. So I, I, I kind of want, it, it, do you want to talk about the 1920s or do you want me to do sure. that? Yeah. I, I can talk about, yeah, I sure. I would so, love to hear your voice. Yeah. The, yeah. The reason why, and people say, why is this relevant? And we'll, we'll link to it. Um, we'll link to it in a little bit. Um, and you'll understand why we're bringing it up, but, um, Back in the turn of the 20th century, there were traveling circuses and carnivals. And with these, there were these hoochie coochie tents, the girly shows. And these were the shows where essentially men would go to see women gyrate and dance sexy on a stage. And the way that a tent is structured is that there's a pole in the center holding it up with the top of the tent draped down and then sides. And so the set, the stage was always in the center with the chairs around. Right. Um, and so because of that, there was a pole in the middle of the stage. And so this is where we first hear of sexy dancing on a pole. And the fact is it wasn't an intentional thing. It was just that the pole was there in the center of the tent. And as these women. Were, were dancing, they started incorporating it into their, into their dance. They were, you know, jumping on it and gyrating on it and grinding on it. And in some instances, they just needed to lean on it because they were inebriated and just needed something to hold them up while they were, while they were on stage. So Been that there. is, yeah. Been there and that. <laughs> yeah. So Emery and I are going to tell you all, all, all of the truths that we've come across and that is a reality of it as well. So it wasn't just you know, oh, this, this pure, we were essentially dancing on this pole and having this connection. It was a mil more of a utilitarian type of it's there, let's use it type situation at the time. Right. And so one of the things that one of the names of the pole used to be called the snorting pole, which I hate that name. So when the women would grind on the pole in a sexual manner, because they figured out like that, that was hot then the men in the audience would snort like pigs. And so that action created a reaction. And so then the pole became known as the snorting pole for how long we're not sure, but it, that did start in the 1920s. Um, 
Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting about this story about the girly tents is that there were only there are only white women told in this story. They don't highlight any black female bodies in the story of these tents. And um, you know, looking back on this history lately, I've been really questioning that and thinking, well, that's because they erase black history in general. And so there sadly is no information on that. But I don't doubt I, for I will a actually jump in there. I took yeah. a trip down to the International Showman's Museum Perfect. in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, if you remember that. I do remember. Where, yes, there's this great um, museum it's called the International Showman's Museum. It's all about the traveling carnival yeah. um, back in the golden age. And there were tents uh, with women. They were segregated. So there were... Of course. Um, yeah, that was the law back then. So they, but they did also have um, the girly shows. They did have black women had girly shows just as the white women did. So they were both represented um, at the carnivals, but it was a time of segregation. And so, um, right. yeah. Yeah, but. And in the, at the Showman Museum, they, they do have a whole section on it, which is exactly. awesome. So if anyone can make it there to see. Right. Is the Showman Museum, is that run and created by sex workers? No, it's by Carnies. It's a Carnies. Carnies. Museum. So okay. it's a, yes, yes. It's a um it's right outside of Gibbstown. Uh, I believe that's the name, which is a really famous Carney town in Florida. Okay. And it's not just about that. So the entire museum, it has everything about carnival. So it has like the freak shows, it has the, nice. the circus ask it but it also is very inclusive where it does have the girly shows and and the the hoochie hoochie shows so it includes everything that you would find in a traveling carnival back in the early 20th century and right but online in books that. like you gotta travel to a carny town in florida to get the <laughs> truth i mean come on you know <laughs> you know, and that's kind of my point. Um, and that's we're going to get into that later. But also, like you said earlier, the Hoochie Coochie dancers, that was originally. First of all, I hate that they were called that. I find that to be demeaning and rude. Um, and they were Egyptians. They were Egyptian women that came over specifically to be featured at the World's Fair in Chicago. Right. And there was an exotic exoticism about them. So fetish, right. fetishization, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, what we're learning as well from uh, brown sex workers is it's that they see the word and feel the word exotic is actually pretty racist. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that for those that are affected by that word. Um, but yeah, they, uh, and one of the things that I was always fascinated about is that we got floor work dancing from the belly dancers. Is this something that, cause I read this in a book about history of dance. Have you heard of this? Um, I would assume that it was a part of it. Yeah, because they would slither around on the floor, and that's what we do now. <laughs> so that was all developed by Egyptian dancers that came over here. And thank you, Egyptian belly dancers, for giving us floor fuckery. Well, if you go back to the, the ancient temples, the temple priestesses back in, you know, back, back, back in the day, sensual movement was an essential part of that right. back then. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's... It's part, it's, it's part of the feminine, right? It's part of right. the, 
the the feminine energy wants to move and wants to writhe and roll. And so, um, yeah, it goes way before the the 20th century, right? This is back in the the historic days when, when, you know, the temple priestesses moved their bodies like that. Right. And I'm sure if there was a pole there, they would be slithering on it as well. (laughs) I mean, why not? It's really convenient to hold (laughs) on to it and grind on it. It's really convenient. And also, I just want to say, like, this is why I love working with you on this project, because, like, I feel like we both have knowledge from different areas. And Mm -hmm. thank you for, like, correcting me. And I also want to say that like to anybody who's listening, there's a lot of holes in our research because there's just not a lot of information out there. And so if you know anything or you have a grandmother or a great grandmother that taught you something, like we would love to hear it and for you to help contribute to this history that we're trying to tell because there's just not an awful lot. And as you see, we have to go to Florida to get full stories. So if you have information, please reach out and let us know. Yeah, when we spoke before doing this podcast, it, it was the, it, with the intention that we want to share the information that, that's out there. It seems really counterproductive to everyone to keep researching the same stuff that's out there. So we've, we've gone pretty deep. So we're here to present what we have found out there. And then with the call to then, if you know more, we're not saying we know it all. Right. So please, please, please let us know because, you know, this is this is something worth recording. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. So moving on, um, we're looking at what happened in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, I'm yeah. looking at your notes. It says, you know, during there the was, world. Huh? Yeah. I can sum it up if you yeah, want. Yeah, do it, please. You're, yeah. you're the queen. You got it. <laughs> you're the queen. <laughs> Um, it will, there was a depression, there were two world wars. And so the, the traveling carnival just kind of ceased. That was, that was an end to a lot of, um, a lot of people's career in the tra- traveling carnival. People were away at war. People didn't have money for entertainment. And so that is kind of the era where the, tra- the traveling shows kind of ceased. And then in the fifties, um, post world war two and, and that time, what we saw was that the strip shows started to emerge within bars, hence the name strip club. Um, But it was very different from what we have today. What we would see back in the fifties was more as what we would now say is burlesque. Um, So there was a stage act. There was a live band. Couples would go and watch this together, but it was the art of the tease, right? So if what, as we're familiar with burlesque, that was um, a great time, an emergence um, within like clubs, bars itself, as opposed to like traveling. But um, all of these acts had costuming, they had um, props, they had, like I said, the live band. It was very different from, you know, things evolve, things change. But so that's kind of like the stripper back then is what we would perceive as burlesque. So do you suppose like that was the birth of burlesque and then strippers and burlesque, like then there was like a branch off of strippers that kind of diverged from burlesque? I actually, the way I view it, I'm not saying this is the right way, but I see us us burlesque and strippers sharing, being synonymous and sharing back to the the girly shows. Mm. 
You know, I do see us sharing a very similar history until you see, and we'll get into it. It was about the seventies where you see the split. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like we're there, right? Is there yeah. anything? Yeah. So what yeah. happened with this split in the, in the seventies? Uh, what happened was, um, the women's liberation movement, which is mm. a great thing you know? Right. And so this is kind of where really it, things get interesting. Okay. And this is where, when you read the history, you have some of the more classic, um, strippers, um, burlesque dancers, um, like blaze star or tempest storm. This is where you see them on record saying like, it's a new, it's a new thing now. And it's just not what we're, we used to do. It was almost like a new team came in, right? Because right. they were used to having, um, they were not used to stripping nude. They were not used to, um, it was a mixed audience in terms of like men and women would come see them. And what happened in the seventies is that with the women's liberation movement, there was women wanting to, you know, be more liberated. So there was more nudity involved. And right. it, when that mixed with um, just the times, right, um, the stage act changed. The band disappeared. Mm -hmm. So it was just pre-recorded music. The, um, the costuming and the props were not so much a thing. It was full nudity. Um, in a lot of places, specifically Vancouver is where mm. my research has taken that all of this really did begin was in Vancouver. And there um, in the 70s, there was things called spreading. There was the stage showers, all of those things that starts emerging uh, 70s. Right. And it's just a different world. Right. So right. also, um I would love to call out if anybody is really interested in this, mm -hmm. this book burlesque West. And I think you may have read it too. Yes. By yeah. Becky Ross is really interesting. It's gonna, it's so much happened in Vancouver, Canada, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the strip club and the emergence of pole. Mm. Wow. Yes. And so, yes. Um, and the reason being, they had very loose liquor laws. Mm. They were a port town where there was, you know, people coming and going. P the, the business owners were kind of entrepreneurial and they, these club owners realized we can have stage shows going around the clock. Whereas in some places you can't be serving booze in the afternoon. Um, they had the, it was, it was a town that was, let's say, um, there was underground, um, kind of running the show. There was corrupt police, all of that. So you could get away with, it was like a sin city type thing, okay. you know? Okay. Sounds fun. And, I know. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot, they, they, um, you were just allowed to get away with so much. Sure. There were in the United States, you could not be fully nude yet at this point. Um, you could in Vancouver, um, right. you could go full nude 
the, you could have these shows around the clock and they realized that they could make some good money off of this. So this is when the dancers, the strippers started going to Vancouver and that's when they were getting like, cause they could make the most money there. Of course. Yeah. So before we like really dive into yeah. the, the late, the seventies, something yeah. happened in 1968 in Oregon that we are just stumped on, right? Yes, this is something uh, Wikipedia says. If anyone looks up pole dance on Wikipedia, it says um, that that um, someone named Bell Jangles is credited as the first person to dance on a pole in Oregon in a, a club called Mugwumps or something like that. Right. And the fact is, no one has ever been able to find a citation for that. So where that came from, no one knows. We so don't know. do right. you know? Are you a listener that knows? Right. And Belle Jingles is cited as being a black dancer, right? That's awesome. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. But again, like you said, the information is so limited. I I have read that. And because what happens is like a lot of these pole dance websites, um, like older pole dance websites, like blogs and things like that, and some studios try to tell the history of pole dance and they like basically copy and paste from Wikipedia and from these same sources like you mentioned. And so it's just like this same basic one liner and there's no other evidence to back it up. So we're stumped on this Bell Jangles Mugwump Oregon stripper that pole danced on record for the first time in a club. So if you know more, please let us know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, stumped. I've, I've talked to a lot of people that are like, have tried to find, to cite that source and no one knows and you can't find anything on the club, but that doesn't mean it's not accurate. It just means like, we don't know anything about it, but that's, it's only fair to say that's what Wikipedia says. So we got to share that, but we can say that we have no idea what, what that means or who that is or really what the situation was behind that. Yeah. I would love to know more about that. So going back to the seventies then, um, it looks like that uh, you had mentioned, okay, here we go, the number five orange and the wild duck hotels. Can you fill us in on what that's about? Yes, definitely. And so what happened through the 70s and then into the 80s in Vancouver is that it was really like a strip club, like capital, like people would go there And it was just a known city where, you know, stripping thrived. And so these these club owners were taking advantage of it. They were investing money in sound systems and stages and lighting. Um, And um, it's worth noting that the way that strip clubs work in Canada are different than how they work in the U.S. and what maybe some contemporary strippers may be used to. So this would be a good time to share how... um, in Canada, and I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but at least up until the 2000s, dancers have agents and the agents get them booked at different clubs. As opposed to, I work at this one club and I get this shift, it was the agent and they would take like a maybe 12 to 15% cut, but the club would pay the performer to come and they would get X amount of money based on their draw. Right. So they would get paid to be on stage and probably plus make tips as well. 
Yeah, I don't know about the tips, but um, do I maybe, maybe not. I, I don't want to say anything at that I'm not in the clear 90s, on. At least in the 90s, that's what was happening. They were getting paid. So I don't know if it evolved. They were getting paid and tipped. So what we do know is what stripping has evolved into was originally strippers were getting paid to show up to work. And now strippers pay hundreds of dollars to show up to work. So it's like the opposite of what it once was. Yeah. It's interesting. And I know that when you were stripping in the US, you didn't have an agent, but strippers in Canada at that time did have agents. Correct. But I did have an agent once when I won Entertainer of the Year for 2006 for Spearmint Rhino. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I did, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure I had to give them a cut of what I was getting paid. I don't remember what that was. Um, And at the time, I didn't question it because I was so used to everyone's hands being in my pockets. It was just I was conditioned to believe that if I wanted to have this great opportunity, I had to pay for it. Um, You know, so. Yeah, let's. Yeah, we can definitely jump back into that because that definitely comes up later. Mm-hmm. So um, about the spread of pole dance. So, yeah. Um, but to wrap up how the poles ended up in the studios, because up to this point, the 50s, the 60s, what we had talked about, there were not poles in, in the strip clubs. Mm. Um, so this is and. I have heard actually someone say 1987 was the year that the first poll was installed in a strip club in Canada. And we just found different information. Um, The information we found that was, and I will read this, in the late 1970s, the number five orange and the wild duck hotels were among the first to install brass poles on stage debuting under the canvas big top on fairgrounds decades earlier the pole reappeared in california as an offshoot of club wonders desire to market something novel so um essentially what happened was as they're building up these strip clubs and they're creating these amazing experiences someone was like let's put a brass pole on the stage as a nod to those tents the girly shows that we talked about earlier. And that's why that was important is because someone was just like, that was cool. They were aware and they just thought it was a novel thing to add to their stages. And because a lot of um, stripper history is in the Pacific Northwest of America. um, And that is because Dancers, American dancers would go up to Vancouver to dance, but they could only get work permits for six months. So then they would just go back down to Washington, to Oregon, to California Mm. before making their way back up when they could get their visas again because they were making so much money. And so it makes sense that that, oh, like a California club would be like, oh, I heard they're doing that in these clubs in Vancouver. And that's kind of how that ended up spreading. But it was initially, according to this book, um, then it was these two hotels, the Number 5 Orange and the Wild Duck Hotels, who were owned by um, our friends that we have to talk about. Um, uh, Oh, they own different, excuse me, they own different hotels. So excuse me, but that was what we found in our research that was in the late 1970s. It was those two hotels that were the first to install, uh, among the first to install brass poles on stage. And so it it's interesting. Just, yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you're saying hotels. So these hotels had mm-hmm. clubs within them. 
Yes. And so um, here's the thing. Uh, there were two other, um, two gentlemen named Jack Cooney and Darcy Taylor, and they owned the Drake and the Mar hotels. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they, again, are entrepreneurs and hotels were the place where these strip clubs were housed. It, it was in a lot of hotels as well as independent clubs. Right. But it was these, um, it was all of these locations in Vancouver were really like what we know as strip clubs started to emerge. Um, And so it was these two gentlemen that we had uncovered actually because they wanted their girls to be good. Like they were known for like, you know, you would get in trouble if you smoked pot backstage, you were in trouble if you were late, like they ran it, you know, like you're showing up. This is like, well, they There's treated rules. them as employees. They paid they them treated. as employees. It was a mm-hmm. job. Yeah. And so what they did was they created this, um, a studio. Now it was just for their dancers, but um, to come and to learn to dance on the pole, to learn choreography, to learn floor work. And they, so to, for us, for Anne-Marie and I, this is the first instance. And we found that it happened in 1984. Now it was not to the general public. And that's worth mentioning. It right. was for, for strippers. Right. So this is like earth shattering to the pole dance community's belief that the pole dancing that we know today comes from Malakamb, which if you don't know what Malakamb is, it's um, young Indian men um, doing gymnastics style moves on like a tree trunk size wooden pole or that it comes from Chinese pole, which was also practiced by young men on very tall, very thick rubber poles. And this all took place in the 1500s in the 16th century, I believe. And so, yeah, I mean, it's undeniable that the this first pole dance studio was open to strippers only so strippers could improve their skill and, and they're strippers yeah their employees you know exactly yeah so it was kind of like them investing in their talent right so we're gonna give them a way to to become better because they were really you know they wanted to be known as having the best dancers in town you know right um it was just it's a different it's a really different and interesting situation of how all of this emerged because, um, well, are we, are we okay moving on? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm so, I, it's so funny. I know all of this and I'm still like enthralled and fascinated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because here's the cool thing is that because this, and this is continuing. Well, let me say, I want to make sure that I'm yeah. not. Yeah. So so here's the thing. Let's let's transition. So now that we have the 70s and we realize how it's a different style, it's not so much the live band, the costuming, the props. It does get more um, uh, kind of, I don't want to say crude, but it gets very in your face. It gets, they're showering on stage. They're mm-hmm. spreading, which was a big thing. It's full nude. It was, um, but it was still... It's still, I, and I don't, I want to say that's in comparison to what maybe we saw in the 50s and 60s. But even when you speak to, to strippers through the 2000s, there was still showmanship. There was still the, um, there was still beautiful costumes. It just wasn't a full, you know, it was like a, a beautiful maybe bikini as opposed to we're stripping down 10 layers type thing. Right. You know, gloves and all. But there was still always um, in Vancouver and a, um, a focus on the show, the show womanship poor, we can say. Uh, but the reason is, is because of these agents, right? And so right. 
um, all of these different um, kind of misnude competitions and all of those that you're familiar with started emerging. And what would happen is these agents, they were the judges and we can bring this into the eighties now. Okay. Um, and that's where they would find new talent. And right. so and you would get signed by these agents. And the thing is the agents would, would send you around. So maybe to all these different districts, districts in Canada or, but they were also known, they'll send you to Japan. They'll send you to Greece. They'll send you to London. Um, and so it was kind of like this, 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 um, you weren't necessarily an independent contractor where you had to find your own work. You had an agent, just like a band would have an agent, right? So if you're a band and you're signed and you have an agent, they kind of, they get a cut because they're getting you concerts places. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And that is like what you said, the, the business model now of you musicians and artists and the like, and, and I'm just like sitting here thinking like, like, how did we go backwards? How well, is it's interesting because backwards? <laughs> well, and it is a Canadian thing though, okay. because when that was happening in Canada, it wasn't necessarily happening here. And that's why through my research, I have started to realize, and it's, even like if you look at Toronto, it was a lot. It was a lot less tolerant than say Vancouver at the time. Mm. Vancouver really did seem to just have that perfect circumstances of the liquor laws, and the corrupt police, and um, the the people the port being a port city were having people come and go that just allowed for these around the clock um, strip clubs and yeah. where the talent was were the strippers, you know? And so this is where, this is where, you know, say coming into the eighties and nineties. Now we find that, um, a lot of these agents would hire other dancers to teach their new talent. So, okay. They found this new talent, but they're not really good at maybe like engaging the audience or choreo or some poll. So they, the agents would pay some more seasoned strippers and they would use the club off hours to teach them some skills before the agent then sent that new scout out. And so the strippers were, yeah, so the strippers were teaching other strippers in the clubs, wherever, you know, and so they're in this town this day, Amazing. okay, the agent's like, we have some new girls, we want to teach you here. And so they were using the clubs um, after hours to buy, and the agents were paying for the, for it. But again, this was in Canada. Yeah, I, I again, I'm like, how did we go backwards? Because when I started stripping, like nobody, there was nobody helping each other. We weren't doing that. And, and when we were showing each other tricks, it was like, look at what I can do. Like, I, I have very vivid memories of like, look what I can do, but not necessarily here's how you do it in spotting. Like it was a lot of just learning on our own. Um, and there was nobody in a supervisor position that was like, oh, let us help you learn so that you don't get like eaten alive. It's a crazy industry. And if you don't have guidance, it's can be, you could infect your mental health. It's because it's, um, it's just, it's totally different from a normal civilian life. And there's no, these days, at least when I started, there was nobody teaching. Well, and there's also the difference, right? It wasn't the dancer was going out and paying the other dancer. Mm. It was the agent was going out and paying the dancer. Right. And so, um, a good, and if 
would you like me to start naming names that if you want to continue these conversations with people, because I was not a Canadian stripper, so I don't have all the stories. I'm just fascinated. And I consider myself of a historian that wants to capture all of this. Yeah. Name names. Um, you want to talk to Elena Downs, definitely. Uh And she found she's, she's the founder of pole freaks. If you're familiar or excuse me, pole junkies, Mm -hmm. she's the founder of pole junkies. Okay. And so, I mean, I don't know how far you want to start transitioning into the 2000s and... Yeah, I feel like... So I, I, I want to go into more of the 90s because some things mm-hmm. happened in... Um, a couple of things happened in 90s. So we're going to talk yeah. about Fania a little bit um, and debunk the narrative that Fania was the first pole dance studio owner in the world. So... Um, and then we're going to touch on the early 2000s a little bit with Sheila Kelly. Um, but I don't want to get too far into after Sheila Kelly because we've got some bombshells of information. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out if you and I do a part two or if this is the jumping off start of me finally putting together the footage that I have and adding new footage. So, I'm definitely, we're going to leave the audience on the edge of your seat a little okay. bit wanting more. Yeah. So <laughs> so in the, in 1994 was when Fania, Fonda, Fania Mondi was, became a stripper in Canada of all places. She's Canadian, which actually now that we've it's, really dove She's from the, off the coast of Vancouver. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fania started dancing for a month in the club. She started around Halloween on her 19th birthday realm, and she danced for a month and started teaching strippers in the club a month. I just think that's so soon. Anyways, um, and then- Yeah, she said she she got her fireman spin and was like, I'm ready to go. She got her fireman spin and started teaching everybody else the fireman (laughs) spin in the club. Then- she only danced, she only stripped for several a months. A, a year and a half. A year and a half. Stripper. Yeah. Right. Then she moved out of North America to an island. Nassau. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And now, Crimson, here's where I forget and I have to check That's my research. I, Did she yeah. open a studio there? Thank you. She did not open a studio in right. Nassau. No. So she, she, go ahead, you go, go for it. Yeah, I was just gonna say. So with Fanya, she started. Um, she started teaching in the clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it would have been in '94, um, and she started teaching out of a shoe store in 1998. Right. Um, and that was also in Canada. And so she, and that was not just strippers. That was non-strippers and strippers. She said, "Whoever wanted to learn." Right. She had um, her card out at a shoe store and people who were, you know, women went to buy or whoever went to buy high heels. And if they saw the card and was like, Oh, she, she would teach at this shoe store in 98. So that's interesting. Uh, She started teaching from her home. So that was, that's a common theme that we're going to start seeing um, Mm -hmm. in the late nineties and early two thousands is that a lot of strippers started teaching from their homes and they Mm -hmm. were teaching non-strippers from their homes. Right. Um, and they were things like that and individual lessons too. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I know Fani was like, it was my nail lady, you know, like my lady's nail. She just thought it was cool what I did. 
Um, and they were still teaching in clubs, shippers. So the right. shippers could be, so they weren't just teaching in the clubs anymore, which is, this is in the late nineties, early two thousands, people were starting to teach from home. Elena, who I was talking about, who I definitely think you need to talk to. She's really a major influence in, uh, she started stripping in the late eighties in Calgary mm-hmm. in Canada. Uh-huh. And, um, she to this day owns four pole studios. She started, um, Pole Junkies, which is like one of the first online pole communities. And she has her daughter and her grandson now part of her business. So, I mean, she brings such an amazing perspective. She traveled um, as a stripper in the uh, late early, early 90s. She'll have some great stories for you. But then Fania did not open. She, she, She moved to Vegas. Right. And she opened her studio there in 2005 out of a Pilates studio. Right. And then a second studio in 2008. Right. Um, and so I will just jump in and say, in terms of pole studios opening, it's hard to tell because around this time, a lot of people were teaching pole, but they did not have a studio. They were either renting out space or they were teaching in their homes. I can tell you for sure the earliest that I have found is S Factor in LA in June 2003. Like for an actual brick and mortar pole dance studio. Correct. She was teaching in her home like a lot of people before, but she had gotten her brick and mortar in June 2003. Now Tantra Fitness in Vancouver, 2004. Okay. Aradia Fitness, also out of Canada. That was actually started by two housewives. That's like the biggest pole franchise there is out there. They started in 2003, but they were running out spaces. They did not have a physical space yet. Tantra was the first one in Canada to get their physical space. Okay. And that's Tammy Morris. Yes. And if y'all don't know Tammy Morris, she is an OG stripper, Vancouver again, and has amazing stories where she traveled around the world um, as a stripper. Again, her agents sent her all over and... Um, and then started partaking in the first like world world pole dance championship. So she, in, right. the, in, in these world pole dance championships that started to emerge, it was most, it was not all, but it was mostly strippers that were partaking in them. And she is really, uh, uh, Tammy Morris, I think you should talk to her too. She's okay. She's great. Yeah. I, I have connection with Tammy Morris and yeah, I'd like to point yeah. out that in 2005, there were three pole dance competitions around the world. There was um, World Pole Championships in the UK. There was uh, Miss Pole Dance Australia. And the, the World Pole Championship was in Amsterdam. Thank you. And then yeah. there was um, Miss, Miss Pole, pole dance, dance UK. That's what yeah. it was. So it was Miss Pole Dance UK, Miss Pole Dance Australia, World Championships in Amsterdam. And in every single one of those, there were strippers in those. Of course. Fact, Miss Pole Dance Australia was completely produced by a, a stripper at the time who then became a former stripper. Um, and like you said, Tammy Morris was dancing um, on stage uh, World Pole Championships in Amsterdam, along with Reiko, who's also mm-hmm. a super OG um, stripper. And uh, they weren't the only two. There were a ton of strippers in that show. There Pantera t- was in that one. Pantera was in that one, and she hails from Washington State. And then if you went to Miss Pole Dance Australia, Felix Kane, even though she wasn't in the 2005 show, she did stripping. She was not a stripper. Uh, she won stripper titles. Yeah, she started pole dancing in 2006 and won Miss Pole Dance Australia in 2006. She did stripping. 
she started stripping after she started pole dancing then because I have her story from an Mm -hmm. interview. And I'm just saying this because I want everyone to respect everything that we're saying and know that we we did like the best research we can. Felix was very young when she started um, pole dancing and it was her mom and her sister went and took a pole dance class. And Felix said, Felix was a trained ballerina. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, and she's the, if you don't know Felix Kane, she, Roz the diva said, she's the Michael Jordan of pole dance. And I was yeah. like, yes, Roz, that's pretty much Felix Kane. Yeah. Um, but she, in 2006, her mom and her sister had taken a pole class in Perth, Australia. Mm. And she was, she said she was very uptight about it. And like, mom, how could you take my little sister right. to go through this one of these pole dances class? And then she was like, well, if my mom's doing this, like, and her mom was like, oh, lighten up, come take a class with me. And so she did. Yeah. And she became instantly hooked, but she was not a sure beforehand. She was actually training to be a ballerina. Yeah. She did and do so, it afterwards. She won titles. There's nude images of her on the internet. Oh, yeah. Call from back in the day. She yeah. won like strip club champion titles from back in the day. Like she's she, amazing. She yeah. went from starting to winning the title within eight Everything. months. Yeah. So, and the, but also amazing. Jamila, who, who was in um who won the first she won pole dance australia in 2005 which you cannot find on youtube but i have the dvd ah! um, yeah she did and so i really i want to debunk a narrative about jamila and the jade split so pantera blacksmith as far as we know is responsible for um the introduction of the jade split um however the word Jade stands for, it's J-A, that stands for Jamila, and D-E, that stands for DeVille. And it was named after Jamila, even though she did not invent it. And she actually, her and Bobby, Bobby, who created Miss Pole Dance Australia, actually saw a video of Pantera doing the Jade split. Now, Pantera's video is very interesting because she was topless with nipple piercings and covered in tattoos. She's badass. So badass. And nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And she did this pole dance video where she just showed the pole tricks. She didn't explain them. And that's the video that Jamila and Bobby learned how to do a jade split from. And they, because she didn't explain it, and I have Bobby on record saying, like, we just had to keep trying it over and over and over again because we couldn't figure out how like because she wouldn't like teach it and say what it was and so that's how Jamila learned the jade split and because she did it on stage in front of a civilian audience it brought the house down and then the jade split was named after her and she has been falsely credited even though she herself does not take the credit Jamila herself will not take ownership that she invented the jade split but this is a narrative that has been put on her just like it's a narrative that has been put on Fanya that she's the first pole dance instructor and now we know that she's not it started at least in the 80s maybe earlier oh I'm sure since the dawn of you know stripping strippers would probably teach other strippers right right? of course yeah because back then you know they it seems like they cared a little bit more about each other. <laughs> it's different. And I'm sure it was cutthroat back then too. Sure. But you know, okay. you find, um, you know, we don't want to just say it was all this or it's all that, but it's yeah. just interesting hearing these different, like, um, 
different stories from different people. So I think that, you know, if you can speak to um, Elena, she's because she really is hugely influential because the fact of the matter is, is that pole did emerge from the strip clubs. If any, anyone who is believing the Chinese pole and the Malakab, they're just not, they just don't know better, you know, but I can't, you can't, they're, they just, that's just where they are. And, you know, you can try, all you can do is educate them that if they're whatever, you know, but the, we're here to just speak historical accuracy. Right. And so uh, you said it best on my podcast. So for those who don't know, years ago, I used to have a podcast called the Pole Parlor Podcast, where I would interview different people from the pole community. And that was definitely inclusive of strippers. And um, so uh, that's where a lot of this history comes from. And Anne-Marie was an early on guest and she said the best thing ever, which was, um, she said, Chinese and Indian men did not open our first studios. They did not start our first competitions and they did not become our first instructors. Those were strippers. And, and that is a hundred percent accurate. Now, non-strippers of course became interested and did their own work around it. And I would love to do another episode with you about like the two thousands. Yeah. And, you know, because we could go so much there, but yeah, just ending, you know, think, if we're just we, ending. Yeah, we do need to end here because if we get into the 2000s, we're going to keep going. So So we might have to do a part two on this. And before we do wrap up, I do want to acknowledge something that did happen in the early 2000s was we had um, in Los Angeles, uh, we had black strippers that were on the forefront of the pole dance industry here in Los Angeles and those specific and their specific names you have Natalie Clark Angel Dust and Josiah Grant who were leading the way you also had Expositions which was one of two pole dance studios in Los Angeles it actually was one of three but something that we'll get into in the two in the next part is that S-Factor always kept themselves separate from the pole dance industry. We didn't really consider them in the pole dance industry. Their community was more just separate. I don't want I, I don't want to use any other word. It was just separate. So expositions was all it was black owned and black run. And um I was I, I was their first white instructor, actually. Um, and they're also responsible for because I worked with them for the first pole dance competition in the U.S. outside of the strip club. And Josiah Grant, as a, as a young black man, was the first pole dance instructor to start traveling the world, teaching and being sponsored by companies. And Angel Dust was um, also uh, a, a black pole dance event um, organizer. And she had her first competition, California Pole Dance Championship in 2009. And Natalie Clark was an instructor and a supporter and a sponsor of all of these actions behind the scenes. So if it wasn't for those three specifically, and I'm sure there's more, um, so many things wouldn't have come to be in Los Angeles the way they did. And eventually in true form, they got left out of the growth and narrative, um, not only because they were um, black but because they were strippers and there was this period of time where strippers were shunned from the pole dance community and then the pole civilian pole dancers took over the narrative and tried to 
wash out our history. And so we're here to unearth the truth, to tell you everything we know based on interviews, research, and firsthand knowledge of what we've seen and experienced. So again, if you have any information pertaining to anything here, I'm wondering what kind of response we're going to get. I really am wondering what kind of response we're going to get from this. Like if you're going to tell us like, no, you're wrong. Actually, this happened. Please tell us we're wrong about something. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're trying. So the point is, is that, yeah, I hope we were clear up front that we just present it to you, the research that we found out there. And some of them, a lot of that research was research that you and I specifically did holding one-on-one interviews. So let's be clear about that. Exactly. A lot of it came from this book, Burlesque West, which is amazing. Um, I was just, I have this prop here. This was one of the first pole dance DVDs. This was by Stripper. This was Fania in 1998. Mm -hmm. So um, we would love to hear like, you know, plugging in the holes because there's so much and especially, oh my gosh. See, here's the thing. We just got up to about 2003, right? Right. Uh, 2004, five, six, seven, eight, nine, things <sighs> explode. Yeah. Things explode. And so it's a lot harder to to kind of hold the narrative there because there's not one narrative, right? There's so many offshoots. There's so many people doing their own thing. Right. Um, and so we're just trying to figure out because here's the thing. Also, there was a bunch going on. I know that there were early pole studios in Japan and Hong yep. Kong. Um, we don't speak those languages. So there's probably the barrier there. Um, and I know that there was a lot going on in Australia and the UK and perhaps in South America, but you know, the research we have found so far, so we want to say that we know this is not inclusive, but the research that we're finding when we're, we're looking for pole and is, is strippers in Vancouver is kind of where that really nice started. Okay. Um, and much respect to, um, to all of those. And we can say that three people, Elena Downs, Tammy Morris, and Fanya were all emerged from that and who are known in the, the community. They're still around, still preaching. So, yeah. All, and all strippers. So, awesome. Wow. This yeah. is great. I think we're going to have to do this again. Thank you so yeah. much. Oh, I would love to get into the. So, so, if anyone has any information, let's say up to like 2003, four. Let's yeah. hear it because yeah. this is how, this is how. There's nothing else written out there is what we're getting at. So don't try to be like Googling and finding. There's nothing else on the internet. We're creating the internet off of this. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. This is so fun. And we want everyone's stories to be heard. So Absolutely. Thank you. Um, It's such an honor to be here and talking with you for allowing me to kind of share this this research with everyone. I'm so grateful for you and for everyone for listening. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and um, stay tuned for more. I'm pretty sure. See you next week. Bye. Hey guys, I just want to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Instagram at yes, a stripper podcast. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube at yes, a stripper podcast. And of course, make sure you follow us on Twitter at yes, a stripper pod. Yes, a stripper podcast is produced by Mackenzie Mazel, Shelly Snyder, and yours truly, A.M. Davies. Be sure to email any questions or comments to yes, a stripper podcast at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to follow me personally, you can find me on Instagram at thequeenofsexy. You can also check me out on my website, thequeenofsexy.com.